Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and today I'm speaking with Professor Alan Brill, uh, who is at Seton Hall University. We're talking about his really interesting book, Rabbi on the Ganges, a Jewish-Hindu encounter. Hello, Alan, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So are you the Rabbi on the Ganges? Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) That's a brand. (laughs) Was that a title just for the book, or was that something you've used in other uh, public work? No, it was just for the book. It just became like when you throw around with your friends, like what should should this discussion be called? And that became the uh, title. (laughs) So... You know, why don't we just start with the little with the backstory of you know who's this rabbi on the Ganges? How did he get to the Ganges? Like, sort of how did how did this book come about? How did this rabbi okay. get to the Ganges? Okay, so I had written two. I mean, I've read several prior books, but the a more immediate one was called Judaism and World Religions, in which I show these Jewish statements on what did it say about various forms of Indian religions, Buddhism. Jainism, in pro, you know, as it, you know, people don't imagine that Jews had encounters with Indian religions in the 10th, 11th, 12th, 18th centuries, or that there are parts of the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita that came via the Persian to the Arabic and Hebrew that were part of a medieval Jewish bookshelf. So that was the book like collecting that sort of material. Um, and there was a real, people were taken with it, like, wow, this is an, a different way of looking at it. Um, and so then, therefore, I had a sabbatical coming. I applied for a Fulbright Senior Scholar Award, and I got it. So I went and found myself teaching Judaism at Benares Hindu University, and at the same time, being able to travel around and speak to people um, about Hinduism. And that's how the book came to be originally. Um, And then once I was there, I thought I was going to do something actually much more, you know, specific and much more academic, like either compare uh, law to law or more Tantra to Kabbalah. But as something went on, I found myself explaining Judaism to Hindus and Buddhists who for them Judaism was only through Protestant eyes of their older British uh, colonial period in which Judaism ended in late, what they call late Judaism, which is in second temple Judaism, everything before Christ. They really knew nothing of Judaism of the last 2000 years. On the other hand, Jews that I spoke to really only know Hinduism through these older intro to religion books, which were also not flattering to the diversity of Hinduism. 
And that's how this came to be. I found myself having that conversation in both directions. And this became the book of those conversations. You know, I, uh, there's so much I like about the approach. Um, before we dive into the book, why don't you, you preempt this in, your, in, in, your, in this response, but um, why don't you tell us, who's this book for? Like, who would benefit? You know, like, who, who would get the most out of this book, do you think? So originally, I wrote it in mind, assuming, because once again, I'm, I'm coming from my own perspective. I don't claim to be an expert in um, Indian religious languages. So I had, naturally, I addressed it to the Jewish community, to a Jewish audience. Here's a view of Hinduism that you would appreciate and understand. I'm putting it into your terms of dietary laws, festivals, menstruation, Kabbalah. Here's a book that you would understand the similarities. And you'd understand the historic, I mean, the historic sense also of that changes. I mean, as I say, both here and in almost every interview, is most Jews still assumed because of their college experience that Hindus are still practicing the Rig Veda and, you know, asking where, they, where are they doing these fancy sacrifices, assuming that they're being done in Edison, New Jersey. Um, the converse was also true, is that Judaism was pictured as Leviticus when I traveled around India. There was no real sense of the whole distance. So I wrote it to a Jewish audience, but I'm founding I'm getting a very strong reaction from the Hindu community because they find it very appreciative to have an appreciative reading and an understanding of rather than having to deal with geopolitics or a Christian point of view here in America, somebody who basically says, let's compare dietary laws let's compare prayers before and after eating, there became something that took a household Hinduism and turned it into something that they could now relate to somebody else in America. Um, so while I wrote it for a Jewish audience, it's now having a response on both sides. You know, I'm really not surprised that, uh, that I thank you for fleshing that out. That was my uh, sort of, uh, assumption. Uh, that was clear, sort of clear to me reading the book, but nevertheless, I, there's so much in there and the way in which it's presented that's, I think, useful for comparatives, for, for scholars of Hinduism, for Hindus. There's something about the way in which you present it that's fresh. And you sort of um, 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 defamiliarize certain things and refamiliarize them in a different way. And there's something in your mode of sort of cultural translation that actually helps us, oh, for me anyways, to see the, the thing you're translating more clearly, if that makes sense. That's exactly what my goal was, is on both sides to have a better understanding of the, of the other side. So tell us, that you said you had a, a, a reaction, a response from uh, the Hindu community. Can you tell us a bit about that? What do you mean by that? So immediately, well, even beforehand, once this started coming out in pieces, I some of it got blogged originally, and some of it was originally, you know, I, people reacting that I was blogging on these similarities. Uh, and I have thousands of readers on my blog, so I got an immediate sense that I'm working on this project. But I've spoken in places like Edison, New Jersey. I was covered in the local Hindu paper. Or the best one is when I spoke at, um, at Harvard. It was an extracurricular talk in which both Jews and Hindus showed up to hear me speak on this comparison. And the Hindu students were very appreciative of now having a new context to think about these things 
about being able to now explain a lot of the traditions, uh, practices, customs, festivals in a way that was less defensive and more, hey, our Jewish um, friends are very similar on many things that we could in some way talk about these things. What were the particular points of comparison that you highlight in chapters of your book? So the points that I actually, um, one, I talk about the fact that Hinduism is diverse and that's usually not done. People usually make one focus or one text. Here I'm saying understand that almost any, first of all, that Hinduism is broken up of Shaivism, Vaishnavites, and all sorts of other smart, all sorts of different groups that are out there. There is no one thing. There's many different philosophies then based on the sixth darshana and other things of how it's played out. Uh, and then with so many languages and regions, there is more members of almost any Hindu form formulation of Hindu practice than there are Judeos, Jews in the world. Um, I mean, they'll understand that diversity was one of the basic things to get across. So therefore, I then covered the six basic philosophies. I then covered the legal codes. I then covered uh, various practice and festivals to give various points of entry. The thing that I cover is that got the most interest in people was one, the comparison between Kabbalah and Tantra. And that just means could the combination of an act, creating a weave between an action and a thought, or the, the role of ritual detail in Hinduism, because in Catholicism, even if you see it as ritual, it doesn't have that incredible thick sense that you can't make a mistake and everything has to be counted and everything has to be prepared and you have to know what you're doing that only exists in Hinduism and Judaism. It doesn't actually exist like that in Christianity and Islam, that incredible over, you could say overemphasis on the exactness of ritual. Um, and the thing I've also been noted for what I covered was the modernization, the historic process. Not only are we not Leviticus and the Rig Veda, we went through years of other material and nar sacred narratives and scholasticism and a whole process leading up to modernization. And in the end, if I go to a New Jersey, I go to a synagogue in New Jersey or to a temple in New Jersey, there's a lot of commonality about, you know, having now a social hall and how do you rent it out and what programs you have for the kids and how you now make a festival more American, that things are not like they were not only not 4,000 or 2,000 or even 500 years ago, but things are now being played out in the same real time of how you go from, um, how you enter modernity, the reforms of modernity, and then eventually suburbanization. So some of the, I mean, I, I am a very, it's a very broad book. No, I have, could have written a whole second book of things I cut out, but it was enough I chose the things to give enough of a basic introduction to see the diversity. Well, broad strokes is, you know, and it's sort of where I live, but in respect of my particular event, broad strokes is obviously 
quite useful for this enterprise where you're introducing, you know, a, a vast series of uh, a set of ideas, philosophies, you know, the jungle of Hinduism. My favorite analogy when teaching world religions or in particular Hindu courses is that Hinduism is a jungle beyond flora, fauna, uh, genus, species. This, it's a jungle. It's, it's an ecosystem. And uh, you're, you're well suited to sort of have a point of entry. What am I interested in understanding about the human equation or about some point in history, right? It's, it's just, it's all intertwined in a way where you can't, you can't easily separate philosophy, theology, ritual, um, culture. It's, it's, so, it's so, so to present it, you, you, you obviously need broad strokes and it's useful. We, the categories of the mind come from our own culture, right? Come from our own perspective. And there's no way around that. And this isn't a question of, um, you know, obviously, otherwise, uh, avoid interpolation and, and want to see outside of their categories. Nevertheless, the starting point is the categories we have. And uh, this, this is why this kind of comparative uh, approach resonates with me. Um, there's a specific topic of comparison that uh, I'd like you to say a little bit about, uh, especially in that you may be writing a book on it. This comparison between Tantra and Kabbalah. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So. First of all, I had to define it's not what people think in America. That the whole, I, I mean, for example, the fact that you will not find almost any introduction uh, world religions to mention the Agamic literature and the whole, that that's where the ritual detail comes from. This huge corpus of untranslated material, only a few have been translated. And that's actually what goes on in temples. That's actually what determines home shrine worship, that's at, you know, a huge amount of that. So first to define that, how is that a specific relationship to ritual and thinking about it, in which ritual is then projected out into the cosmos? And that Kabbalah is very similar, that whatever you do is affecting this Kabbalistic universe. Um, and then I went into more of the specifics of how it plays out in terms of creating similarities, not just the general cosmology, but even, for example, in Kabbalah, the short version, the laified version of, of, in, of Kabbalistic intentions would be, I do this to unify the Shekhinah and the Holy One, blessed be He. I do it to unify the feminine in the universe with the male in the universe. And that jumps out immediately to the unification of Shakti and Shiva as a, as a way of doing ritual. I give a, more, a few more, you know, more technical cases in which you are then maintaining the cosmos, you know, pointing out such things that, you know, you know certain concepts of ritual as world maintaining, not as salvation giving, or anything else but as world maintaining. Um, and then in terms of the visualizations, we then get to, you know, why comparing some yantras to Kabbalah in terms of why the pictures that work that way. I actually gave a talk at the last AAR, the American Academy of Religion, back in November on comparing Kabbalah and Tantra to basically a Hindu scholar group. And it was very well received that I'm on the right track. 
Um, and that's why I want a future project maybe now to work this out. Originally, if not for COVID, I would have been back in India this coming January for the springtime. So we'll see what's going to happen because then I was on some level going to take care of, here are my Kabbalistic texts, take them to experts in Hindu meditation and Tantra and tell me what does this look like in your eyes type of approach in order to hear where they see similar indifference. Um, and then I talked about the side points of the Tantras about binding yourself in Hasidism to the, to the Rebbe, to the Hasidic leader. And some of binding yourself to the guru. I spoke, I spoke a little bit about it, the sort of theme and variations of these practices of the visualization within religion. Obviously a fascinating topic and we'll obviously have you back. And that's the time. one I'm probably going to come back to and do in actually scholarly detail. Well, then we'll obviously cover that book when it's out <laughs> on new books in Hindu studies. Um, uh, so what a quite a question that may arise in the mind of the listeners, hey, all of these similarities between Tantra and Kabbalah, was there uh, an historical cross-pollination or transmission involved that we know of, whether with this particular topic or with Hinduism and Judaism in general? What would you say to that? So there's two questions there. The first one is my natural reaction is Hinduism, Judaism, there are many Hindus, Hinduisms, many Judaisms, and we're talking about thousands of years. Was there contact of some of these, of some Dharmic texts during both the Hellenistic era and the Middle Ages into the West? And did Jews read them? The answer is yes. But once again, it was on a library through Persian, not specifically in the Hindu direction. Um, and the other direction we are only beginning beginning to think about now, unfortunately now that many countries have been destroyed on the Silk Road, they've been yielding more manuscripts um, for us to begin to start thinking about going the other direction of what was going, going the other direction. Uh, but people are now working. There's a whole new academic enterprise of working now under Judaism under the Mongols um, and, you know, what they knew about uh, the various Indian religions. You know, there was one person who worked under the Mongols, uh, Rashid al-Din, who, you know, wrote a whole treatise describing various groups of Hindus and, and Buddhists in the 13th century. But beyond that, we don't know, you know, any real effect. On the other question of context as a whole, you know, on some level, the context go back to the way I would phrase it, biblical times. It means there are Tamil words in the Bible, meaning all in Song of Songs, the spices, the, all those imported objects are the Tamil words. You know, Solomon claims to have done shipping with it. The Jewish communities in India, or the Christian communities even more so, great antiquity going back. Um, you know, when I was in India, the Syrian Orthodox Church took an incredible liking to me as if, oh, yes, you're, you're one of us because they claim to be those converted by St. Thomas, a Jewish community of the Second Temple Times converted. So, hey, we don't get many visitors like you showing up. Uh, 
So contexts have always been there through the ages, much more than people realize. There are much more uh, trade that went on between the Southeast Asian area and uh, areas where Jews live. And we just, we just, you know, haven't been paying attention to it. That's fascinating. I did not realize the Tamil words piece. <laughs> That's really, really interesting. Um, you talk about, there's tons of content in your book. I think that would be fascinating. Your comparison of, of um, dietary laws, for example. Um, there's just tons of material in here. For the person reading this book, um, let's just say someone from a Jewish community, um, what is the hope? What is what is the what is the goal? Is it sort of just? Uh, well, I won't put words in your mouth. Like, what is the goal? What what, do, what is the transformation for that reader? So, one to actually begin to understand what Hindu the Hinduisms are, the diversity, the complexity. As you said, what was your metaphor? The jungle is to be one to understand the jungle and that it's not whatever you read in your undergraduate world religions textbook from, from decades ago. Um, two, it's to understand the similarities and understand they've got their own philosophy and legal theory and other such things. A big one for me is that you have to trust Hindu self-definitions. You cannot come in assuming, oh, they're really like this, they just are saying this because, you know, they don't want you to know what they truly believe. And what they truly believe is whatever my 19th century colonial book on religions told me it meant. Um, and that, that they understand that there's a real Hindu community self-understanding and that the self-understanding not only changes even before our eyes, the same way the Jewish understanding has changed from the beginning of the 20th century to the 1950s and 60s, to now the, you know, what it looks like in the 21st century. And that's a very, very big takeaway uh, for the Jewish community. And finally, the big takeaway is a self-understanding. Is that if you've defined yourself a certain way, let me make you look at Judaism a very different way. So one of the things you get from the book is understanding how many things in Judaism are much closer to Hinduism than they are to Christianity, or the fact the role of darshan, of sight. Look at the role of sight in religion, which plays a much bigger role, and I bring all these Jewish texts. Let's reconceptualize, um, let's reconceptualize what Judaism means based on this encounter. And that's why I have an epilogue to the book where I actually, I, it was, this book was not an ethnography of Jews who live in, in India, but I did an epilogue showing here are all these things of the Jews who live in India. They do many things that look to an outside observer raised in America as if very different, meaning the lighting the Sabbath candles in, by Jews in India looks like an arti, looks like a... a um, the uh, candle uh, devotion, you know, same thing with the whole uh, eyes and putting a, a banana, putting fruit next to the Sabbath candles. And 
And there's a whole bunch of these things that are, or the fact that they bring the Torah scrolls in the synagogue on pandals, on carts, uh, as if it was a temple. And I say, you know, I basically put it on point blank that if Judaism had really developed culturally on the Ganges, it would have looked very, very different than being cultivated in Morocco or Poland. And, you know, understand that these are not abnormalities, but this is the way you would have been if you had lived there of then being culturally embedded. No, it's just so interesting. It's so rich trying to parse out religion from philosophy, from culture. Well, I don't. No, you know, I know you don't, but I mean, it's just, you know, uh, had, had Judaism uh, flourished along the banks of the Ganges, I mean, that thought experiment itself, it's, it's like, right? Um, what, I have a question about uh, time, right? Do you, do you ever, what are the idea of kind of Judaism has a very different conception of time or linear time versus this Hindu cyclical notion of time? Does that ever come up in your, in your thinking? So I bring work? it up in the book because I then show the very unknown to American um, Jews and certainly no, very unknown to world books and world religion is that Judaism has this idea of cosmic cycles in which we keep going through repeating cycles and that there's a certain path in which these cycles repeat. Uh, for eon until the end of days. And that plays a role in traditional texts, which has really been pushed aside for this self-presentation in America of having this linear biblical time for whatever Judeo-Christian embeddedness, which is not completely true if I'm coming from a more um, Kabbalistic or more traditional sense in which time is much more cyclical where there is no time, you know, I oh. said, what? Oh no, please go ahead. You know, in which you could then say time doesn't matter. What only cares is about our relationship to God. Those, those, those texts do not get emphasized. And that's why I would, I would not even know how to teach a world religion survey because <laughs> you've got to make so much difference and I'm not sure it works that way. You're, you're, you know too much to teach world religions. <laughs> I, have, uh, I currently have the good fortune of teaching um, undergraduates at the University of Calgary. Uh, it's, um, it's a second year course. It's a survey course of sorts on uh, perspectives on the afterlife, death in the afterlife. And um, <laughs> one of the slides in my introductory uh, lesson is called the conceit of world religions. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know, it's a useful conceit on some level. Nevertheless, I mean, what are the world religions? Who decides what the religions? How do we teach them? And, and obviously, it's, it's, a, it's an artificial um, enterprise. It has to be a stepping stone to deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. um, please go ahead. So that becomes what your the death in the afterlife becomes one of the actual things I deal with in the book. Because I open up with a quote from the 17th century rabbi Menashe ben Israel, who basically says, reincarnation is one of the fundamental principles of Judaism. We are gonna keep coming back in reincarnation in endless cycles. And I pair that off with many contemporary Hindu statements that say, we don't give much thought to the afterlife. 
it's all about how you live here in this world. To say, let's not essentialize it like that. I mean, I open a chapter like that, and then I talk about the Jewish views of um, reincarnation and afterlife and say, however, none of this carried over into American Jewry that really got pushed away in the process of becoming American, suburban, Judeo-Christian, or whatever else. They pushed away all these elements. Uh, and the other hand, I show here, here are Hindu versions, but I say, look, whatever you're reading, if you're going to get a mamamsa definition, like many of my colleagues in the university were claiming they're not interested in the sacred narrative versions of mamamsa, it just means on some level you're going to be paid back causally for what you do uh, without any of the stories going with it. Um, showing the diversity on that side and then let, you know let's think about this you know what is it going to look like now coming to coming in now the you know hindu diaspora is it going to change also so um this idea of reincarnation in judaism would you say that it's could, is it a mainstream accepted idea in judaism it was a mainstream accepted idea with no exclusions from the 16th to the 19th century. The modernizers in some of the West already pushed it away, but certainly among main people and most like the uh, traditional prayer books, I'm going to have it used for the high holidays upcoming, still have it untranslated. It's still there on the page, even though no one's paying attention to it anymore. I just find that so fascinating. I can't tell you. It's so interesting to me. Um, for a number of reasons. Well, one is one is for the reasons because you know the, the ways in which we teach world religions, right? Um, the ways in which we understand the structural opposition of the Abrahamic worldview and the Indic worldview. And there's great utility, I think, in in thinking along those lines. But then. <laughs> Uh, Jews believed in reincarnation wholesale for <laughs> the 16th and 19th century. Who knows that, right? Like, um, there's a lot of texture that's lost in in, in grappling with with these religions. Obviously, um, what? So anything then becomes the point, and part of the goal is let's now encourage people, you know, to now make a real comparison when you get up past the essentializing and the big generalizations. Let's go, you know, take a Hindu and Jewish text from the 18th century that doesn't have the modernizations of the 19th century yet, let's compare two of them and be much more subtle in our comparisons to see really where the differences lie. And it's so interesting in that the text that I'm using for this course, the author talks about um, reincarnation beliefs among Jews, and he mentions that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're originally Kabbalistic ideas in his take. And so then you're, you're teaching an afterlife course with uh, students in the, in the course who may be Jewish, who may be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we don't believe that. And then there's this added layer, uh, right? Of, well, what do Jews believe now? And so it's, it's such an interesting endeavor, right? Like, is, is our goal to help people understand what's happening on the ground? Is our goal to help people understand the history of ideas? Are they mutually exclusive? You know, the, there's a lot of intrigues in trying to teach undergrads about world religions and the history of world religions when it affronts their particular belief system or understanding in the moment. 
Right, so therefore the question is what is on the ground? Certainly you should cover the, the not just the modernization as if we're just gonna do 1900, but even the contemporaryization, the suburbanization, secondary suburbanizations, because that's really gives them an insight of the process of how religion plays itself out. But at the same time, you're still giving some of the core, core beliefs, core texts. You're not just gonna do, you know, how do you do, you know, a blood drive in a, if you're not a sociologist, you're not gonna do, how do you do a blood drive in a Hindu temple? You're actually gonna do some of the more classic, you know, material of how we got to that point. That's fascinating. Were there, sorry, I think the, the, um, the signal dropped for a moment, we're back. Were there other aspects of the book that you wanted us to highlight and recover? We'll certainly put your blog and your, your interesting interview in, in the description of the podcast, but was there anything else that you kind of wanted to touch on in this introductory podcast? Um, let me see anything else. No, that is really the basics of, you know, what I planned on covering. I think also my next two projects will be the comparing Kabbalah to Tantra, which like I said, may be somewhat on hold because I actually want to do that, you know, in India in order to keep self-correcting it. Um, and two, I'm working on a book now on Jewish views of religious manyness, because that's where we are now, that automatic sense that there's a global many religions and um, Jews have really not taken that into account in any way. This, this fact that we're always now seeing that there's many, many in the world and people, Jews are now attending interfaith events in which there could be 12 or, or 25 faiths, depending on what country you're in, with no real sense that there may be near 9,000 active religions in the world um, to try to work that out. And that's going to be, once again, like my older books of like collecting texts, collecting ideas, where did Jews you know, talk about each nation having their own religion type of statements. So that's the one I'm doing here safely from my computer under COVID. <laughs> Great. That's wonderful. We'll have to have you back on the program um, when you're finished the current work. Uh, certainly when you're comparing uh, Tantra to Kaba, that would be really fascinating. Uh, it's been great speaking with you today. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. It's been a pleasure so, to be here. So for those of you listening, we've of course been talking about Rabbi on the Gajis, a Jewish Hindu encounter by Professor Alan Brill. Uh, until next time, um, keep, keep listening, keep reading, and keep thinking about comparative religion.